whatever you put on your resume is fair game. If you only took a course on Coursera about machine learning and AI, please don't claim that you are machine learning and AI engineer on your resume. Hello and welcome to Muko's Corner. It's a show about learning to lead a life that feels more you in both your life and tech career. The show itself is live streamed on my YouTube channel and I'm happy to have you be here with us today in the podcast version. I'm your host, Mayuko Inoue, and invite you to come in, sit down, get cozy, and enjoy the show. Today, we're talking about how to land that first job in tech. We're gonna learn how recruiting new grads works from the inside from a recruiter. Like, how do you stand out to companies? How do you get that coveted first job into the industry? And what are recruiters looking for in each step of the process? So today to talk about what goes on behind recruiting, I'd like to introduce you to our first second time guest, Sarah. She's on her very first episode about salary negotiations, and she's the lead negotiator at Levels.FYI. Her goal is to help people make better career decisions and negotiate a salary they deserve. Previously, she was a tech recruiter at companies like Amazon, Facebook, and Google. Hi, Sarah. Welcome back to the show. How are you doing and how's your week been? This week has been great. I'm doing good. Thank you so much. Um, And thank you so much for having me back. It was a blast last time. So I'm really excited to be on again. Wonderful. Well, last time they loved you, everybody in the comments on Twitch and everything was just like, Sarah just has so much amazing information. Uh, And so when I announced that you were coming back, they were like, yes, Sarah. So we're so excited to learn from you again about everything that you know about recruiting because you just you just know so much about all this stuff. And so I think it's great to have you back. So I think we're going to have a great show. Um, so yeah, like I said, we're going to do 40 minutes of interview kind of discussion and then, uh, 20 minutes of Q and a, um, I think today's whole topic is around landing your first job in tech. And so again, I kind of just want to like level the playing ground again, just start from basics for people who may not be super familiar with this at all. Um, so we can bring them along on our journey. So, um, the conversation today is going to be mostly centered around new grads, but we will dive in a little bit about bootcamp grads and self-taught or self-taught developers. But Sarah, what does a typical process look like for a new grad to get a job out of college into the tech industry? Yeah, so um, in terms of like from a candidate perspective, it's going to be pretty similar to an industry uh, recruiting where you're going to go through the process of talking to your recruiter and then the first technical phone interview and then the final round. So usually for some company, they like to kind of shrink it and only have you talk to maybe two to three software engineer and then some company would want you to talk to three to five engineer now these interviewers are usually those that just volunteer to be an interviewer so these interviewers that you talk to from a new grad perspective or intern they may not be um, the people that you will be working with um, in terms of like the the process, it tends to be a little bit more volume driven. So for industry recruiting, usually what we look for is something very specific, like we need a backend engineer who have experience with cloud computing, for example, versus for intern and new grad, we usually just call them as like fungible engineer, let's just hire them through and then we'll figure out a team for them after. Um, so a lot of it is usually by cohort too. So a lot of it, it's almost like, I mean, the best way to describe it is like batch hiring. Mm, I see. So when does like all of that actually start, especially for new grads? Cause in the U S mm-hmm. school ends in like May, June ish, right? What, when does like recruiting start for new grads? I guess. So if someone was to graduate, um, in 2022, let's say, what's the earliest that companies are going to start looking for to hire new grads? Yeah, good question. So for new grad and intern, the process start a lot sooner than when like they actually open up the job. So usually for, for Amazon, we do operational planning. So we do operational planning one and then operational planning two. So there's going to be like two times when we will review like headcount and things like that and budget. What does that look like? Um, and only certain team choose to 
participate in, okay, we want to have intern and some teams can say, hey, we, we don't have that capacity right now and therefore we're not going to participate. Um, so for a new grad, usually the hiring process already start in January of the year and the headcount, they usually get headcount from August of the previous years already. So the process does, you know, the the process, the headcount planning and all of that happens a lot sooner than you expected. Um, so usually around this time, and, and it sucks for a lot of folks who graduate in December when they don't, when they start applying and they don't see anything and they just start to wonder like, is there something wrong with my resume? What do I need to do to kind of optimize my chance? And sometimes too, like the headcount doesn't open until March or June and then the interview process will happen about like one or two months and then you get your offer and then you start in like around like August. Yeah, that makes sense. That's pretty close to my own journey because I did like an internship that converted to a full-time role. Um, and I think like I always got the the advice to start looking in September, right before, like the fall before you graduate, if you're going to graduate in the summer. And then most people start their job in like July, August, September. I remember I started my job like August 12th or something like that. 15th, actually, I think in 2014, <laughs> that lines up pretty closely. That was six, seven. Oh my goodness. Seven years ago. So like things haven't really changed in terms of seasonality, um, but that's good to know. So is it, is it right then to kind of generalize that like each company kind of has like a number, like they have like, there's this many seats open for new grads. Um, and we want to fill them and like throughout the year because of the budgeting and headcount and stuff, it gets more and more um, final, I guess. And then so, mm. like you said, like new grad uh, recruiting tends to be very volume based where it's literally just like interview as many people as you can from different schools and try to fill those seats. Is that kind of like a good summary of how that works? Yeah, so there's like internship and there's also co-op. So for some company like Microsoft, for example, um, or even like Facebook, they have specific recruiter to support certain school. And then some company like, for example, Apple can choose to have a much longer internship or that's what we call co-op, where it can be anywhere from six months to a year. And then there's only some company that say, you know, we don't want to do that. We only want to do like, you know, 12 weeks sort of like program for for intern um usually i would say like stay on top of that company internship program because when we post a job we just get so many applicants so usually the job only stay up for about a month and then after that we're going to take them down to process all of the applicants that we have from from those pipelines yeah that makes sense and i kind of want to like click into one of the things that you said there about sometimes depending on the company, there might be like a recruiter per school or per campus. Um, for that, I guess, like how do companies decide where to recruit from um, as far as like choosing which universities? Yeah, so usually they would choose like top tech companies. So for example, at Microsoft, they would have a team of recruiter who only go after like Ivy League school. And then we have, uh, or Microsoft sometimes would have like a team that go to like top tech school like UC Berkeley or Waterloo. Um, and, you know, it, it really depends. And usually company pays so much money to these school and that's why they want that ROI back in their pocket. Yeah, that makes sense. It like I think I get a lot of questions about like, is it worth it to go to a four-year university for computer science or should I go to a boot camp? And ultimately, one of the things that I think is important to think about is like what kind of connections does that school have? Uh, because if you go to a school that has those connections, like if you go to UW, it's gonna have a connection to Microsoft because it's right there. Um, if you go to Stanford, you're gonna have connections to basically every uh, tech company there is. And so like, it's not just about, I think the education or the experience of going to school, but it's the network that you gain as a part of being able to go to that school. So if there's any high school students who are watching the stream, uh, that's something you can consider, especially because recently school um, acceptance has come out. So if you're thinking about accepting one school over the other, that's I think a really important factor to think about. Um, okay, cool. So that's super helpful to know. Um, I think another thing that I really wanted to ask before we really dive into kind of each step of the interview process for a new grad is that anecdotally, just from comments, DMs, talking to students through my job, 
Um, I've heard that college students are sometimes sending in like 200 plus applications to get that one job, that first full-time job. Um, why is it so competitive? I guess like what 200 is a lot. So why, why do you think it, um, why do you think that's kind of become the norm and why is it so competitive? I think that, I mean, I'm speaking from like fan companies perspective because I've never worked for like a much smaller, like series A funding startup companies. So I have no idea what that looks like for them. But from a fan company perspective, I mean, everyone wants to work at Amazon, Google, Netflix, Facebook of the world. And, and I think it's a lot of it too have to do with visa um, sponsorship because the majority of the folks in tech are very diverse. And for a smaller company, they just don't have that capacity to do visa sponsorship versus like big company or more established company can do that. Um, so I think that would be like the biggest reason why I think like it's so competitive. Um, the second thing too, it's, you know, it's pay is really good, <laughs> much better than like much, you know, other startup companies. And then it do wonder for your career, um, even though, you know, like you may learn the same thing at a startup company versus fan company, but just having that approval on your resume is going to open a lot more doors for you. Um, so, yeah. And in terms of like, you know, volume perspective, um, it's honestly like every time when we open up a rec for a new, a new grad or intern or even co-op we would get like ten thousand application per day oh my goodness wow <laughs> that's a lot yeah. yeah so one candidate was like well i haven't heard back from the, these company i haven't heard back from my recruiter like what's going on i'm like well that's why <laughs> yeah <laughs> no kidding yeah it's like you know from a student side you're dealing with hundreds of applications that you're dealing with, but on the recruiting side, you're, you have all of those applications. And so, yeah, it, it's a lot of applications to go, to go through and comb through. So it does kind of become a numbers game at that point, because you're just seeing so much volume in that. So that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and then, okay. One more question before we like step in to, again, the kind of journey of, uh, of job hunting and kind of sharing your perspective in that. I, I love kind of myth busting as part of Muko's Corner. Um, and also just like getting to know like the inside scoop of everything. So what do you think, um, like, how does it work on the recruiting side that like we just general people, normal people who are trying to get a job into tech that we don't know about? Like, what's something that you think is like a piece of information that recruiters might all know, but yeah, it's it's not common knowledge out there. There's just a lot of different channel for like sourcing candidates. So sometimes we don't just look through like the people that apply and sometimes it will take us to kind of go out there and operate almost like a headhunter, like to see like who's doing what and you know, which intern or new grad would be good for a certain position. Like this is more common for um, machine learning and AI, just because usually there's something specific that we're looking for. Um, in terms of like the, the, the part that's I think that can can be a little bit tricky to navigate here is industry recruiting is completely different than new grad recruiting. And there's just a lot more red tape being put around new grad and internship. So sometimes like the difficult part is that we I just get so many messages from students, you know, asking for, you know, if they can take a look at my resume and things like that. And there's I can't do anything about it. I don't support the campus and I don't have any visibility into that. Even for at Amazon, we have two completely applicant tracking system where one is you know, for only intern and unless if I support intern, that's the only way that I would get access into it. So I can't just randomly submit someone else um, resume for, for that pod. And that's something that kind of like sucks at the same time, like as much as I want to help, there isn't anything that I can do. So for those that, you know, maybe want to reach out to a recruiter, be strategic about who you reaching out to. So instead of just going on LinkedIn and just look for like technical recruiter and send your resume that way, don't do that. Maybe reach out to, you know, do, do a little bit more of a tailored search, search for campus recruiter search for a co-op recruiter, search for a like new grad recruiter, because you're probably will hear back from those recruiter um, more than like a leadership or like an industry recruiter. Yeah, that makes sense. Like they're just completely separate teams and separate roles just because of the nature of, of recruiting, it looks like. 
yeah yeah the process is just like completely different it's like night and day different <laughs> yeah actually in you talking about that I had a question because like I I know from the industry recruiting side a little bit more just because I've been like part of interviewing panels and stuff um, and so from an industry perspective like the people who are making decisions of hire or no hire tend to be hiring managers right so there's our engineering managers directors whoever needs um, like a direct report under them to do, to fulfill whatever role, right? Um, from a campus recruiting perspective, like who's the one to make the decision of hire versus no hire if it's a little bit like more abstracted away from the teams? Yeah, so this is kind of like where it gets really tricky because the manager that you talk to, that person may not be your manager when you start that position. So usually, I mean, I'm speaking from like Amazon and I specifically support Amazon Web Services. We would just kind of put the words out there in terms of like, hey, in recruiting, we're trying to put together a team of, you know, interviewers like who would want to participate so only certain manager would say okay like i'm open to do this and then only certain engineer that want to be a part of it um the nice thing about amazon is that if you're trying to become a bar raiser it does help kind of get your interview counts in um because at amazon to be a bar raiser you need like a hundred interviews to become one um so like sometimes like for the people that want to get promoted they would like want to volunteer to do to do interview in terms of like making a yes or no um higher like decision each person on the interview panel would have like a rubric so let's say if there's three interviewers on your panel one person would cover data structure and algorithm one person would cover object oriented design and then maybe the manager would be the one that do like cultural fit and there would be like the checklist that they go through that the candidate do this if they do let's say let's say this candidate check seven boxes out of 10, that's a maybe. And if the candidate only check one out of 10, okay, that's a hard no. Or if the candidate check eight out of 10 boxes, okay, that's a yes. And then usually we would have a debrief too, where all of the interviewers sit in a room, kind of talk about, you know, that candidate uh, performance and whether or not they would be a good fit for the program or the company. That's so fascinating. That's like totally separate from how I thought campus recruiting would happen. It's literally like, it's very rubric focused. And it seems it's just like some, you're just trying to find like a well-rounded engineer who has like computer science fundamentals, it sounds like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Um, and then one clarifying question, um, just because I thought of somebody in mind uh, who, who I think they have this question too. <laughs> When we're talking about yeah. new grad, probably should have clarified this earlier, we're talking about new grad. Um, is it just undergraduate new grad students or does it include master's and PhD students as well who are graduating? Yeah, so like this is also another myth too. And I, I've seen this from a candidate perspective. I've seen this from like our clients at levels as well. When someone tried to make the case for, well, I have a master's degree. Shouldn't I be considered for a higher level? Shouldn't I get paid more? right now for the industry we lumps you know bachelor and master folks together and unfortunately there isn't like a differentiating factor between bachelor and master but for a phd those would be a completely different program it still belong to campus recruiting but usually there's a lot more flexibility for phd you're gonna get more of that like one-on-one -on -one experience just like if you were gonna interview for an industry position that makes sense. Because intuitively, like when um, industry is industry folks are looking for PhD candidates, it's because of their thesis or what the PhD candidate worked on. So I'm guessing, you know, stuff like machine learning, um, artificial intelligence, as well as even like UX research um, tend to warrant like a PhD um, degree in order to go into those roles. And so I can see how it's a little bit more um, tailored, I guess, to, to that person. So, okay, this is great. This is already like busting so many myths in my head. I've already learned so much. Um, okay. Now let's walk through the kind of, uh, interview process. And I'm going to walk us through specifically from a candidate's perspective, because I think a lot of the people viewing this are kind of on the candidate side. Um, so I guess step zero is applying to the role. Like that's, we're going to zero index thing. Like that's, that's what we have to do first. So what's the most like recommended tactic for how new grads can go about applying to jobs. Um, I think I want to also tap into kind of like 
the trade-off between quality versus quantity. Like, should I be applying to 200 jobs a week or should I be building relationships um, with specific people and really working hard at a couple or a few uh, applications? Yeah, so in terms of like, I would say number one thing is stay updated with your social media because when a job open, like I said earlier, it goes really fast and some company chooses to take it down after two weeks because the amount of applicants they have is just insane. Um, so make sure that you stay updated. A lot of company like Salesforce, Microsoft, even Amazon put a lot of events together. Go to those because for a recruiter, um, and I've done events like a few times at Amazon where if you show up to those events, we want to reward you. We want to thank you for taking the time to come in and, you know, interact with like our team. So sometimes too, like you automatically get that first, um, like you get that ticket to, 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 I don't know what's the analogy for it, but you automatically get like a link to for the take home assignment versus like someone who didn't go to the event, they would have to apply. And then you kind of now relying on a recruiter to click yes on your application and send that link to you. Versus if you go to their events, you automatically get that first link. And then if you pass that, that's when the recruiter will work with you in terms of like moving you through the first process. Um, it's really, I mean, I feel like take home assignment just have like such a bad rap to it. But because we're operating so much in terms of like volume, we just want to make sure that we're spending our time a little bit more productive and efficiently here. We want to talk to candidate who can, you know, at least pass like the computer science fundamentals. Um, so go to those events. Um, even Google have a lot of events to either live or even on the YouTube channel watch those video in terms of like what the interviewers are looking for. Um, the company did spend a lot of time and effort to put together those like material for for the candidates. Um, the second thing is there's a lot more different revenue that a recruiter would have to, to go and look for candidate, not just applicants alone, like I mentioned earlier. And we're like, where do we look for candidate? Number one is going to be LinkedIn. So make sure that your LinkedIn profile is optimize with keywords and it's really i mean i have so many friends that come to me and say like well i've been like applying to so many different jobs and like no one ever got back to me and when i looked at their resume or their linkedin profile like i can't tell that they are software engineer because the title would be something like member of technical staff or something technical but I'm just like, are you a software engineer? Are you not a software engineer? I'm confused. And they were like, that's the reason why a recruiter can't find you because there isn't software engineer anywhere on your application. Um, so make sure that you optimize your LinkedIn. That's the biggest thing. And then number three is I love TripleByte. At Facebook, I would go to TripleByte to source for candidates. And a lot of companies are, you know, have the same thing too. Um, another website would be like hire.com. So beyond just LinkedIn, be a little bit more creative about, you know, where else that you can um, get that yes from the recruiter. And with Triple Byte too, like as a company, we have to pay money <laughs> to look for candidates. So like, you know, spend the time to kind of do the tests and things like that. Um, HackerRank also is another good resource too. And then build relationship with people. Hackathon would be a really great way to ramp up your resume if you don't have any experience. Uh, build relationship in terms of, you know, uh, maybe another hiring manager or another software engineer. I would say the best way to really utilize your LinkedIn is don't just reach out to manager. Don't just reach out to the recruiter. Reach out to someone who was once in your shoes. Let's say if I come across, let's say I want to be a software engineer and I go through LinkedIn, um, a Facebook, for example, and I saw someone who's been at Facebook for one year, I would want to reach out to that person and ask, hey, I came across your profile and it's, you know, what you're doing is very inspiring. And I saw that you've been at Facebook for one year. You know, is it possible for us to connect? I would love to learn more about how the process was like for you. What else that you can learn uh, what what else that I can learn from you and like that person's more inclined to say yes or talk to you because that person isn't bombarded with like 500 messages per day from, on LinkedIn and like they are more relatable and like what the advice that they can give you is a lot more relatable too. Um, so I would say instead of reaching out to hiring manager or recruiter, do reach out to the people that once were in your shoes.
That makes a lot of sense. Wow. So many good tips just now. Okay, wait, I want to click into some of these things. So <laughs> the first thing that you said um, was uh, going to events, like going to events that like um, companies put on at their campus, which totally makes sense. I've been on the side of like helping put these events on and it takes work and effort and resources and time and money. And so of course you're going to reward the people who go because recruiting from the company side is not cheap. Like it takes so much effort to get that thing to happen, I guess. Um, so that, that totally makes sense. Um, I'm guessing like, I guess for anybody who, you know, wants to find out about these events, but is having trouble doing so. Do you have an advice? Do you have any advice for like, how do you even find out about these events that are happening um, on your campus? LinkedIn. So mm -hmm. on the company page, like LinkedIn would be like the best way to kind of stay updated. Another thing would be the YouTube channel. Um, Cause like Google would announce all the event on YouTube. And then the last one is going to be Eventbrite, I think. I use Eventbrite. Amazon and yeah, to your point earlier, it takes a lot of work to put an event together. And from a recruiter perspective, like I know that my upper management will ask me in terms of like ROI and metrics. I can't just put together an event and there isn't a way for me to measure my ROI unless if I send candidates that take home assignment and then from there present, you know, like, oh, we put out this event and it costs us this much. And on top of that, we ended up getting X amount of candidates. And then here's our conversion rate. So like that's the only way for us to you know measure our, our our ROI. So that would be like the best way for you to get noticed um, for for your resume and kind of yeah. like get through that round of the interview. That makes sense. Yeah. For those of you not familiar with ROI, that's return on investment. So yeah, it's like anytime a company puts on stuff, they're investing money and resources on something. So they want that return in some way. Uh, and if it's a recruiting event, they're literally looking for candidates <laughs> to, to hire um, or at least just to spread the word about a company because maybe, you know, they failed headcount, but they still want um, people to know that this is a company that will hire next year, next season, or they're looking for a specific kind of person. So that's super helpful to know. Um, okay, the second tip that you provided was updating your LinkedIn and making sure that it looks good, like you have all the keywords and stuff. And one of the things you mentioned was um, like making sure that it looks like you have the word software developer, software engineer on it. And I was just thinking about it, like from a student's perspective, for someone who hasn't worked full time before as a software developer, I know that there's this hesitancy to be like, I've never been paid to be a software engineer anymore, like before, can I call myself a software engineer? So I know that that can be kind of like a crisis that people can have, especially in that tagline of like, what is your role and who are you? Um, do you feel like if you've never had a full-time role before, is it okay to put that in the job description? Like, is it okay to be like, this is what I'm shooting for. So this is who I am. Is that an okay tactic? Yeah, so in terms of like, how would you identify yourself, right? Because LinkedIn is not like a resume. It's not like a legally binding contract. It's just another platform of social media. Like I can call myself whatever I want on Instagram. <laughs> um, but you probably want to be more strategic about like what you put on your LinkedIn. And there's that about sections that you can be very specific about, you know, your software engineer, aspiring software engineer, and then what type of engineering that you specialize in? Are you full stack web? Or are you back end? Are you Python? And I really love when I go through a LinkedIn profile and they tell me that, like I'm a back end web development engineer or something like that. And then in that about section, you can do a lot with keywords. It doesn't have to be from the experience alone. Um, and in terms of experience, there's so many ways for you to kind of get that experience too. I know that for Microsoft, if you just do like a few hackathon, they count that as experience. Another way for you to ramp up your experience is open source projects. You actually get to interact with engineers that are in the company. You get to learn about like, oh, okay, I have to, you know, make sure that my code is it makes sense and it my code wouldn't break like their code and things like that and i know a lot of my friends was able to leverage open source to get jobs uh, full-time position um even for self-taught folks too and then another way is internship or any project that you have you can call yourself software engineer the name of the project and then kind of bullet points like your accomplishment what did you do and how did you get to that point 
Dang, resume tips, amazing. <laughs> We're going to have to have you back on to talk about all about resumes because I think we could talk about this alone for an hour. Um, yeah. A question that popped into my head now, again, kind of thinking from a student's perspective is a lot of students don't exactly know what kind of engineering they want to go into. Like, you know, I think a lot of computer science programs at different universities cater to having a good breadth of um, both theoretical and sometimes like kind of application-wise uh, knowledge. So they, you ha they have you take a mobile programming class, they have you take a front-end, back-end, databases, networking, all of that. Um, but for someone who just like doesn't really know exactly what kind of role they want to go into, um, is it better for them to choose and say like, okay, you know, I don't really know, but I think back-end, sure, let's do back-end because I like my back-end class the most. Is it better to do that or is it better to like talk about all of your breadth of experiences and kind of just be like, I like everything, help. <laughs> From a recruiter's perspective, what works better? From a recruiter perspective, I would say as, you know, I mean, you can explore, but in terms of like a resume and LinkedIn perspective, think of it as like, it's your marketing your branding, your brochure, you want to put like the best on there, right? And from a recruiter perspective, when I have, when I see too many question mark on a resume, I usually just pass on that resume because I just don't want to hop on a call with someone and then ask them those questions and they say no. And then it would be like, okay, I have to reject you. Like it's safer for me to just pass and not being put in a difficult situation to reject that candidate later. Um, another thing too is I know that if a resume has too many things going on and I present that resume to my hiring manager, they will tell me no. So I already know what my manager is going to say and therefore I also will reject that resume. Another thing too is like whatever you put on your resume is fair game. If you only took a course on Coursera about machine learning and AI, please don't claim that you are machine learning and AI an AI engineer on your resume because we do have a meeting before the interview happen. And all of the interviewers will look at this resume and say, okay, based on this resume, we wanna calibrate you correctly. We wanna ask the right questions. And let's say I had this incident happen where one of the candidate, for whatever reason, other team didn't say yes to this person and the machine learning and AI team decided to say yes to this candidate and they ended up tailored the interview just around like machine learning and AI, like domain specific, and this candidate didn't do so well. So whatever you put on your resume, just know that they might ask you or bring it up during the interview process. So you want to be good at one thing instead of like 10 different things and then, you know, have the interview not to go so well. That makes total sense. Like I think of the analogy of just like, if you go to a restaurant and they're like, you know, we can do Japanese food, we can do Korean food, we can do Italian food and Spanish food and Mexican food. You're probably not gonna go to that restaurant because <laughs> it's probably that like, none of that is super good versus if you really are just like, you know what? Korean food, like that's what I super love to make. That's what I super love to eat. And that's what this restaurant is about. Then the mental model is there. The branding is there. And people are more likely to be like, yeah, Korean food. Cool. Instead of this mix of like many things. And you're just like, I don't really know what you're about. So that makes complete sense to me. From a manager perspective, when you don't have like a focus, it's really hard for that manager to say yes to you because they have to think of like, okay, hire this person. How can I best utilize this person on my team? What project are they going to be working on? So when you like have a little bit of everything from a planning perspective, it's really hard for the hiring manager. And therefore they might just say, no, I want someone who's a little bit more specialized in one thing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, okay, next question, burning question that I have. This is still kind of relevant to applying to the role, um, but I think there's a lot of pressure to have like a computer science degree to get that software engineering job. Um, most universities, computer science is an impacted major, um, which means that it's really, really hard to get into the programs and really, really hard to stay in the program. So there's just a lot of pressure to like stay a computer science student. Um, and I think there is a lot of just like, this notion that if you don't graduate with a degree, then you won't be able to get that software engineering role. Um, but what do you think about that from a campus recruiting perspective? Is it really important for there to be a line that says BS computer science? 
Yeah, so I'm gonna get the PhD out of the way first, because PhD is something very specific, and usually they will require you know that you have a computer science or whatever it is that the company really needs. So PhD, read your job description. It will say it's a requirement. Then therefore, you will need a computer science in order to get that PhD internship or scholar program or full time position. But for bachelor and master degree, if you read the job description carefully for the education section, they don't say you're required to have a computer science. Usually, a lot of company will say. Um, computer science or STEM or related field. And when they say that a computer science degree is not required. Um, and actually, in fact, like from, I mean, from my time working at Amazon and a few other companies, um, the best engineer that we have actually didn't have a computer science degree. The best engineer that we have came from degree like math, especially math, physics, and some even came from more like education background or even like music and those make really good software engineer. So you don't need a computer science unless if you're wanting to do something very specific like machine learning and AI, then, you know, the company can require that. But for a bachelor and master, the answer is no. Yeah, the math, physics, education and music majors, it's just that like boggles my mind because that's not, <laughs> but that that's really interesting. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. Like from my own career, I've seen that most of my peers, like most of my colleagues um, who are software engineers didn't study computer science. So there isn't this pressure. But um, I think it, there's, it's probably all caveated, right? We're like the major itself doesn't matter, but you still have to be able to demonstrate solid computer science fundamentals. So whether you did that through classes or whatever other means, um, it's that's that's the thing that they're looking for. They're not like trying to take off like, oh, computer science, cool. Like they're really trying to make sure that you can exemplify and demonstrate your knowledge in computer science. Yes, yes. Yeah, mm -hmm. perfect. Um, great. Well, we're about to come to the 40 minutes. Um, so I'll ask a couple of more questions. I had so many more questions, but I just like came up <laughs> with so many while we were talking. Um, but we're about to dive into Q&A. Um, I guess like specifically, let's talk about like the interview part, I think, because we've talked a bit a bit about resumes, cover letters, like LinkedIn profile tips and tricks and how to stand out to a manager. Um, but specifically when you get to the interview portion, um, let's just kind of like talk a bit about that, because that's just such a huge part about getting that first tech job. Um, so, Sarah, from your perspective, what can students do to prepare for their interviews? When you get to the final interview, a lot of people just have this misconception that they have to be really good in tech um, and the interview would just center around like lead coding questions. Actually, the answer is not really. I've had engineers who maybe didn't do so well on the tech side, but they demonstrate really good soft skill and they ended up getting an offer. So when you get to that final stage, the company will index on both tech and soft skill. So for the soft skills, I'm just going to touch on this really quickly. A lot of students didn't prepare for this portion. And the question is usually in the format of, can you tell me about a time that you X, what did you do? What was the end outcome? And a lot of people didn't come prepare for this. And a lot of um, students ended up sharing like personal story about maybe a time that they overcome hardship or overcome challenge and things like that. As interviewer, I can't document that. From a legal perspective, if you share anything personal, I might just have to kind of acknowledge that in the interview setting, like, thank you for sharing that. Do you have a different example? Um, and usually when I ask that question or interviewers ask that question, we want concrete example of a time that it actually happened and how you navigated that situation. And 80% of the students that I talked to, they would give me hypothetical example of like, oh, well, if it happened, I would do this. And I would just have to remind them like, okay, did it happen? Can you tell me something that actually happened? Um, so prepare for those example would be super helpful. I would say um, keep in, you know, in the back of your mind, like prepare like five to seven examples and then make sure that you structure them in a star method and that stands for situation, task, actions and results. Uh, make sure that you prepare and rehearse it a few times just so that you don't end up like rambling during the interview. Um, 
So, and then be prepared for follow-up questions too. This is another thing where, let's say I ask that question, tell me about time ABCD. And I just wanted to ask follow-up questions and the student just thought that they did something wrong or the answer wasn't correct and they just completely like shut down. <laughs> so I see that happen a lot. It's like, it's very normal. The interviewer just want to ask more follow-up questions just so that we can write clear feedback in order to, you know, make a case for you later if we think that you're a strong candidate. So don't freak out when that happened. And then on the tech side, um, I mean, obviously lead code, but the thing is, if you have the cleanest solution, but you couldn't talk through it, you probably wouldn't get a yes from the interviewer. So usually from an interviewer would look for A, did this candidate ask good clarifying questions? And the questions are usually really ambiguous. It's, it's designed that way because they want you to ask those questions first before you jump into a problem solving mode. Um, and then before you even, after you ask a clarifying question, be sure to talk through your thought process and then open to hints and feedback. So this is the biggest thing. We know that you don't have a lot of experience. We're gonna have to coach you. We're gonna have to mentor you. We're gonna have to develop you. And the biggest thing that we look for here is not the cleanest solution. We're looking for how coachable you are. And a lot of the times the interviewer would try to give hints or see if, you know, if this candidate is stuck, are they proactive about asking for hints? Are they proactive about asking for help? And there are so many times when the interviewer tried to give hints and the students or the candidate just didn't listen at all and they just kept going. So then from an interviewer perspective, they now raise an issue of, well, I may have a, a, an issue with coachability because I try to give hints so many times and they didn't listen. So you don't have, you don't need to have like the best answer. Make sure that you communicate, ask clarifying questions, talk through your thought process, open to hints and feedback. So those are like the three things that you always need to do in the technical interview. That makes sense. It turns out that there's a lot of soft skills that comes through, even in the technical <laughs> interview. So one of the things I think about is just like cracking in the coding interview book, right? That everybody studies from all the time. The behavioral part is like this thin versus the technical stuff is like this thick. But in reality, it's actually a part of everything else. And sometimes the behavioral stuff is um, weighted at least equally, if not more than the technical side. So thank you so much for sharing that. Um, I do have one more question before we go into Q&A because we just have to nod back to our very first chat together at MUCO's Corner. But Sarah, can new grads negotiate salaries when they get their offer? For a new grad, usually it's going to be really hard because everything is, again, operating, we're operating from volume here and usually by cohorts just because of, you know, pay quality. We want to pay everyone the same. For a co-op, usually there's a little bit more of like flexibility in terms of negotiating, but not much. But as a new grad, you do have the power to negotiate. In fact, for some company like Microsoft, they want to reward you for, you know, going back to them. So if you had a previous internship with them, they will give you a higher compensation package when you come back to the company. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. And if any of you are interested in learning more about salary negotiations, then you should watch episode one of Muko's Corner, which is available in the Muko's Corner podcast. And the video recording is available if you'd like to become a member. I also cut up our chat into two videos. So there's two videos on my channel right now uh, where Sarah provides some more information about salary negotiations. So thank you. We always have to end on that note because I feel like salary negotiations are a big part of the whole process. And uh, I think it's interesting um, how it works depending on like if you're part of new grad or industry. So thank you, Sarah, so much for sharing that. Hi, it's me again. Pardon the interruption. I hope you're enjoying the episode. I want to take a moment to thank the sponsor of this and all of the episodes, my YouTube members. That's right, I have a membership program right on YouTube where folks get access to the recording of the live stream, emojis to use in the comments and chat of all of my videos, a merch discount, and more. My members directly support the work that I do as a content creator and make this whole show possible. So you too can become a member today by clicking the join button on my YouTube channel, which is linked in the show notes of this episode. Now, let's get back to the show. We're going to go into Q&A. Um, I see a lot of great questions from the audience here, and we're going to start with Martin's. Uh, Martin asks, 
as a self-taught person hoping to end up in a position, what's the best way to prove my credentials? Any tips that can help show professionalism or separate me from other self-taught people? So did I, did this person like got a bachelor degree or a degree in a different field or just like never? Yeah, I think that's the assumption. Yeah, they didn't get like a tech or STEM degree and they're kind of career switching into software engineering. Yeah, so usually the biggest recommendations that I would have is don't put the education education sections on top do it toward the bottom because then it forces the reader to kind of go through the experience first before they kind of pay attention to the education section and in term of if you come from a different background there's actually a different recruiting group it's diversity and inclusion so you probably would have a better shot with those group instead of like new grad co-op or um, intern and a lot of companies are putting a lot on like diversity and inclusion too. So, and self-taught engineer, they also tend to do really, really well, if not better than those who have um, computer science degree. And a lot of companies now are, you know, kind of want to bring those folks in. They have a lot of different programs, like Microsoft has a LEAP program. Um, Facebook has the rotational um, software engineer program. So check out those programs as well. Perfect. Amazing. All right. Next question from Andy VDR. Um, I'm curious if this process is any different for boot camps, considering the different range and skill sets boot camp grads have compared to CS degree. Yeah. So the process for boot camp is going to be similar. Um, you either will be considered as an industry recruiting track or diversity and inclusion. Um, so in terms of like highlight your experience projects, hackathon would be like the good ones to, you know, mention. And then open source project. And I cannot preach that enough. I've had so many people that I've mentored. Um, when I tell them like look into like open source project, you know, challenge yourself for those triple byte challenge, they do end up getting a lot, you know, a much higher conversion on their resume. And a lot of my friends who was able to get in with companies like Apple and Netflix by just talking about their their projects. Perfect. Amazing. All right. Next from Yunseo Lee. Um, what does international students or what do international students have to take into account since they require visa sponsorship? Should we have FANG level resume most of the time? We kind of touched on the whole international um, folks applying to FANG companies. So I think this is a really interesting question. For a fan company, usually like 100% of the time they do offer a visa sponsorship, but safe to say that most public companies will also offer visa sponsorship. The only thing that you might want to be a little bit, you know, you have to double check with the companies, usually like the smaller startup company because immigration, again, there's just a lot of red tape being put around it. I'm not an immigration specialist. Um, usually it's very expensive and smaller company may not have the budget or the bandwidth to offer visa sponsorship. Yeah. And I and like visas, again, take resources, time and money for companies to try to get. And so that's why smaller companies oftentimes don't um, hire or are, aren't willing to sponsor visas versus, yeah, larger companies have the time, resources and money to do so. So, yeah, it's I think it's really tricky coming from an international like non-US or non-wherever the company is place because it really like that's where I think policies and the government, I think, play a part in recruiting way more than I thought it would, frankly. Like when I was working, I was like, yeah, like obviously we should have people from all over the world work on this product instead of just people from California because this product is everywhere. But in fact, it's just so hard to get sometimes that like H-1B visa um, or whatever visas are required for whatever country that it just, you like literally run up against legal issues and you're just like, ah, like, okay, well, like how do we kind of deal with this now? Um, so yeah, it's, it's difficult. And I think it's a very unique, um, place to be in, but hopefully they, they can figure it out. I, I have faith. I have faith. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, last question. Cause we're coming up to the hour. Um, from Shun. Should I use services to review my application or services that help me become a better interviewee? <sighs> I have to be very careful about how I answer this questions. I would say double check the credential. If the company that you are going to work with or hire, who are the people that are helping you to interview or review your resume? Have those folks 
work in tech companies are those recruiters in the field that can give you concrete feedback. It, you might not get a lot of relevant feedback based on someone who maybe only you know, like a counselor from a school never worked in tech before, because there's just a lot of tips and tricks that you, that person doesn't know. So um, I would say the biggest thing is it depends. Um, check your credential. Usually, too, like the tech community is, you know, one of the best communities out there. If you raise your hand and you ask for help um, for those to review your resume, they will be willing to do that for you. Um, so there's a lot of resources out there and again like check your youtube channel for salesforce and google they will tell you what it is that they're looking for and then for levels two we do have a resume service and you will be connected to um a resume or i'm sorry a tech recruiter um, and those tech recruiter either have been a leadership recruiter or also like campus recruiter that can give you a lot of feedback so yeah, I think it's really important, like you said, to get feedback from people who kind of know, like, know more about that recruiting pipeline. Because um, even just from talking to you, I'm like, wow, there's so much that I didn't know about campus recruiting. So if I were to do kind of a resume review for like a new grad, I would have a very different set of feedback for someone um, compared to industry recruiting. And that's just pipelines are so different um, depending on which one you're in. Companies are looking for completely different things. Um, year to year, technologies change, skills change. And so it's an ever changing scene. And there are a few people I think who can um, who know like really good insights into that world. But uh, I, yeah, completely get what you mean by like, be wary about who you get that advice from and look kind of in the right places to get the best kind of feedback. So that makes a lot of sense. Well, that brings us to basically the hour. Thank you so much, Sarah, for being on the show today. I, again, as always, whenever I talk to you, learn so much about recruiting, salary negotiations. Literally, this has been such a valuable hour, and I'm sure my viewers think the same way too. Um, so Sarah, where can people learn more about you, your work, and this topic? Um, well, levels.fyi, we have an internship page dedicated to like who's still hiring, what are the compensation for, for interns, and then on top of that, we also offer a resume service as well as negotiation service where, like I said, you'll be connected to technical recruiter who are currently still tech recruiter and they're active um, in the industry. So amazing. And that's the show. Thank you so much to Sarah for being on the show again to share all of her insights. You can find out more about Sarah and levels.fyi in the show notes. And thank you for listening. Tell me what you learned in today's episode and suggest future topics and guests by tagging me on social media at HelloMayuko. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform. I hope you take care and I'll see you in the next episode.